Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show, team. My name's Amelia. Today, once again, we have an amazing person on the show. It's going to be really cool. I'm excited because I'm a GS nerd anyhow. But we have Dr. Mari, who is a spatial ecological data scientist. I know it's a mouthful. It's going to be good. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mari. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. That's a good start. Okay, hopefully an easy question. What is your job? Uh Uh-huh. So it sounds very fancy and technical, but basically I work in the Perth office of the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And as a spatial ecological data science, in essence, I'm a geographer who works with a whole heap of marine biologists helping them fill in the gaps between where they are able to collect observations in the ocean directly so that we can try and understand what is living on the seafloor, why it's there, how has it changed over time. A lot of the places that we visit uh, in the northwest of Australia, because I'm based in Perth, are places that have been very rarely surveyed, much less mapped. Um, So it's really exciting to go on these field trips and discover what is actually living on the seafloor, sometimes up to 120 meters deep. So we use underwater towed video cameras, a benthic ecologist, which is just an ecologist who cares about what lives on the bottom, watches these tapes and records using a software program, whether they see hard corals or sponges or starfish or whatever. So that creates a data set of organisms and groups of organisms that have been observed at those locations. Then I take that back to the office and use computer modeling and statistics to predict across an entire map of the study area what is likely to exist in between those observations. So basically filling in the blanks between the observation dots. So that's my main job, but every chance I get, I work in my specialty research area, which is trying to understand the impacts that tropical cyclone waves have on the world's coral reefs. So I'm sure you realize that waves can smash up corals and damage them because that just makes sense. Um, But under the right conditions, cyclone waves can actually drag up cool deep water to the surface and cool off the water around coral reefs. So if that happens at the right time when corals are under threat from hot water, cyclones have the potential to actually help them. So in my work, I reconstruct spatial and temporal histories. So reconstruct maps over the past of where cyclones likely helped and hurt coral reefs. And then I work with climate modelers to do the same thing into the future as the climate changes. 
So yeah, that's my job. So just starting with the fact that A, it's a really cool job and B, that was an amazing answer to that question. Very smoothly, smoothly done. Oh, thank you. (laughs) But there's so many things I want to ask you. And the first thing I'm going to say is I feel like a fool once again, because I have never thought about the impact that cyclones have on the water. Like you see them, you see the map of them and you just sort of think, oh, it's out at sea. It's fine. Ah. It's, It's not doing anything. Like it's just building up and you'd only be in trouble if you were a ship. But it's like, obviously there's big waves. So I'm just feeling a bit silly right now. Oh, don't feel silly because obviously we always relate it to our own personal experience. And anytime I get interviewed about this, I always try and relate it to what people know. But for example, in um, the Western United States or where I am here, Northwest Australia, there's all kinds of oil and gas infrastructure out in the water that can put humans at threat from cyclone conditions even when they don't hit land but yeah it's not what normally comes to mind because usually people are affected only if they uh if the cyclone hits land and that's usually what people focus on so that's a very normal reaction and the other thing too is that we can't control cyclones or stop them we just endure them so I think that also kind of makes you think oh well why should we worry about that because it's out of our control but where my work comes in useful is when we're trying to think about coral reefs which are under extreme threat with uh, the heating climate. In fact, we're on a trajectory at the moment to lose 99% of the world's coral reefs by 2050, because if the average earth temperature post uh, compared to pre-industrial gets more than two degrees Celsius or reaches two degrees Celsius, that's what will happen At the moment, with the uh, commitments different countries have made under the Paris Climate Agreement, right now we're tracking towards an average Earth temperature rise of three degrees. Hopefully, people's commitments will escalate and that'll come down. But anyway, reefs are under threat, so scientists around the world want to do something because we love reefs and reefs provide essential services to humanity, not just to scientists who love the fish that swim on them for millions of people, shoreline protection because they block waves. There are lots of biodiversity, which can mean their locations for drug discovery, et cetera, et cetera. So we want to save our reefs. But if we're going to spend a bunch of money trying to help reefs through some kind of targeted conservation, we don't want to spend that money in locations that are likely to get smashed up by cyclones all the time because then we essentially waste that investment. So that's where my work comes in. And then the cooling effects of cyclones, we're still trying to discover whether those happen in consistent enough patterns that it would be useful to favor sites that are often cooled by cyclones. Still working up a big data set uh, for the world on that. Did I answer the question? <laughs> I but I don't think I asked a question, but you added 
valuable information. If the cooling effect of the cyclones is proven to be uh, valuable for protecting the coral reefs, has there yet been any talk in the fringe areas or wherever of science of uh, anthropogenically, so us doing that manually, humans coming in and scooping up lots of cold water from down below and moving it up like in a geoengineering kind of way. Ah, that's interesting. Um, Not in a cyclone context, but um, there are various interventions, they're called, that are under consideration in Australia for trying to help the Great Barrier Reef navigate the, the dangerous waters of climate change. And these range from Simple things like enhancing the connectivity of larvae, so baby corals, helping them reach other reefs. So if a reef is damaged, it can get enough new baby corals to recover. There's a big program on genetically, not quite genetically engineering corals, but breeding them so that they're more resistant to the effects of warming. But then there's crazy, There, I shouldn't say crazy, but there's more uh, out there engineering kind of ideas like giant fringe, eccentric. Yeah, more eccentric ideas like giant fans uh, to, to move the cooler water up, which is what you were alluding to. I don't know that anyone's tested the feasibility of that, <laughs> not to malign it. And then there's another project to try and enhance the reflectivity of clouds. So obviously if it's really cloudy, then the heat stress doesn't build up to the same extent in the water. On my side, I normally only look at the direct effects of the cyclone circulation. So where it's stirring up the water and directly cooling, but because it's much harder to quantify and prove the effects of cloudiness and whether or not you can attribute it to a cyclone or not. But that's something I'm trying to move towards because if we could do that, then we could reconstruct that through the past and into the future so that we have some sense of where that typically happens. And I think you kind of need to know that if you're going to do that geoengineering thing. But the problem is that the risk and the threat to reefs is so urgent and imminent that there isn't enough time to properly research these solutions and we may have to just try some of them without really knowing whether they'll work. Keeping in mind that the Great Barrier Reef has had mass coral bleaching three times in the past four years and luckily it doesn't look like it's going to happen this year. So you can imagine if you if you go and survey however many reefs up and down the Great Barrier Reef and like bucket loads of them are damaged, it takes a while for them to grow back. Like it's not going to happen by next year. So if it keeps getting slammed by bleaching like every single year, it creates a downward trend in the health overall of the coral reef communities that that make the reef. But obviously there will always be variability. So there will be reefs that are perfectly fine and then there'll be reefs that are damaged. It's always a mosaic, a combination of states of health at any one time. Okay, before we get totally sidetracked, we should go back a little bit to <laughs> <laughs> the questions. 
You mentioned that you got to, like, you're actually going out into the field. So congratulations on not being just tied to your computer. Have you seen, like, a favourite place or have you been on a particularly cool trip that the people listening could be jealous of? Well, I haven't been able to go into the field lately because of the coronavirus because we have to severely limit the number of people that are on our ships so that we can be socially distanced, even with taking COVID tests beforehand and whatever. But prior to that, my PhD work reconstructed cyclone impacts on the Great Barrier Reef over a, I think it was a 25 year period. So I had multiple field trips on the Great Barrier Reef. And one of my favorite, actually it was before my PhD, it was when I was doing my master's. It was in the far Southern Great Barrier Reef. There's uh, a group of reefs called the Swains. So people, if you Google up that up, you'll find where that is in the Southern Great Barrier Reef. And there's just heaps and heaps of reefs all packed together. And it takes you about two days by boat to steam out to where they are because they're a little bit offshore. And because they're far away from people and not that many people go there, at the time I went, there was like up to 90% coral cover. So you're swimming around on this reef and everywhere you look, it's covered with these amazing colorful corals. And then I look up and a white tipped reef shark is like swimming around. And then Christmas tree worms, which are these brightly colored worms, sea turtles and everything. And then just to make it more crazy on board on this trip I was on was a scientist called Hal Heatwell and he's a sea snake expert and so he took us to this reef called Surprise Reef and the surprise was that there were olive sea snakes everywhere and our job was to catch them take them on board and milk them for venom which I learned how to do (laughs) So that's the thrill seeker side for people to be jealous of if they're a thrill seeker. And if you're more artistically inclined, you can be jealous of of the gorgeous underwater panoramas that I saw. (laughs) You you had me right up to the point where you mentioned sea snakes and I was like, "Mm, nope. (laughs) (laughs) They're so dangerous. Well, it's interesting. Yes, they are. They're um, one of the most venomous snakes in the world. But they're super friendly and curious. So it was really freaky because they were all over you, like looking at you. And you thought, oh, but if I accidentally smack them with my fin, like they could just bite me and I could die. (laughs) Anyway, it was interesting. It was a surprise. Okay, so a well-named reef and, you know, a new skill, another skill. That's it. (laughs) Can you talk us through what an average day at work looks like for you? I'm guessing there's probably two kinds. It'd be like the desk day and then there'd be like a field day. Exactly. So in a desk day, I would probably spend some time doing some survey design. So uh, even if I don't go on the trip, we're often out in the field 
Um, and it's really important to do a careful job of designing where we're going to take observations because Australia, Northwest Australia has a vast area of marine and coastal waters that's largely unexplored. And it's really expensive to take the ship out and it creates carbon emissions. So you want to make sure that you collect the data in exactly the places that will give you the most value of information when you take it back to the lab. Um, so I work with colleagues on doing that. I'd probably be spending part of the day working up some data and running some models, trying to figure out from trips that have already gone where the different um, seafloor communities are located. So recently we did a huge project all up and down the northwest coast trying to map what kind of organisms live along this ancient coastline. So geologists had surmised or predicted that there used to be a coastline like whatever, thousands of years ago, and that when sea level rose, uh, it got buried. And so our role in this project was to have a look along it and try and figure out, well, is there any evidence that this is there? And can we see bottom dwelling communities that would make sense for, for such a coastline? So I spent a lot, a lot of time working up that data. I also do lots of science communication. So I'm often working with my colleagues to translate their research results into accessible, engaging maps and language that the everyday person can understand. And we have various online atlases that I'm involved in, like the Australian Marine Parks Science Atlas. So I led the team to create that initially. Um, for Parks Australia, which is a federal government agency that manages the Australian marine parks. And so now they're in charge of it. But, but um, I often, I often have that translation role between the IT techs and the other scientists so that we actually communicate something that people can understand. Hopefully something people find engaging as well. Like maps often draw people in. Yeah, exactly. So if I were on a ship, it would be totally different. When you're, when I'm on our workship, it's not very big. So all up, if we could fill it up all the way, if it wasn't COVID times, uh, I think there could be 18 people on board. And usually we share a cabin with another scientist. So if you try, for example, to walk laps around the ship to get 10,000 steps, I literally get dizzy because I'm just going in a circle. But the ship has, so I guess I'm saying it's it's a bit cozy because it's not very big. So the most important part of every day for me is to get up really early and go up onto the top deck where there's a little area set aside for exercise. And assuming it's not too rough, I uh, get out my Pilates mat and my exercise bands and just like do a big relaxation thing and and photograph the sunrise. Uh, and it's just a nice bit of 
peace and tranquility in the day. Uh, one of the great things about being on the ship is you don't have to cook. Someone like the chef makes you all these meals and morning teas and afternoon teas and it's like, whoa, because I'm mother of three kids. Normally I'm cooking and cleaning and doing all that, but I'm on the ship and it all just magically appears. Good. So meals are really important, but then, yeah, the most of the day is spent engaging with the actual research uh, we're trying to do. And of course, it totally depends on the weather. On one trip we did, we were about halfway between Darwin and Broome, and we had this huge thunderstorm. So we were trying to follow this toad video transect, and it was so windy, it actually pushed us off the transect. And so the next day we went back and redid it and stayed on the transect. And it was really interesting because when we got pushed off, we saw these luxuriant sponge gardens with gorgeous colors and amazing shapes and sizes. And that, and densely packed, which often doesn't happen. And so we went back and redid it and we were in a slightly different position and it was totally bare sand. We run these underwater video transects. Um, we deploy underwater baited video, which um, attracts fish and sharks and rays and things so that they can be counted. We're constantly running multi-beam sonar. So that is basically sending a sound pulse from the bottom of the ship. That sound keeps going until it hits something and either gets absorbed or bounces back. And the time it takes for the signal to bounce back and how much of it bounces back allows you to map the depth of the seafloor across the ocean. So we call that the bathymetry. Uh, and that's a very important data set we use in our models. And we can do that at very high resolution. So if you have, if you place your multi-beam transects, so the track the ship takes, if it's close enough together so that you have full coverage, they call it, uh, then you can get down to like one meter resolution. So you know what the depth is every one meter on the bottom, uh, which is great because these uh, sponges and corals and whatever, they're really patchy. So like I was saying to you before, you can have tons of something and then you just move a little bit like 20 meters away and there's nothing. So the more detail you can have, the better. Yeah, I guess those are the main things we do. Dessert is always a huge highlight. Sometimes when I've been on voyages, I've done a blog. So I've had to do a blog entry every day. So I might be up late doing that or just even making sure that I tweet because I like, I always go to my kids' teachers when I'm away on these voyages because they're like two to three weeks long and I can't talk to my kids the whole time. And I, I say to the teachers, I will... I will be tweeting or whatever to this account, check it. And then you can um, show what we're finding to the class while I'm there. And my kids just love that. Like, look what my mom found, a giant starfish. <laughs> That's so cool. They're, they're pretty lucky kids. Yeah, they they know I'm 
I'm not a normal mom because as we'll probably talk about later, sometimes I wear a coral polyp costume. How old are the kids? I have a daughter who is 13 and twin boys that um, have just turned nine. Okay, so they're starting to approach the age where the coral polyp costume might start getting a little bit, li- little bit embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the package. <laughs> it is. It's an important parental like core skill to be able to mortify teenagers in front of their <laughs> friends. It's essential. I, I'm super curious, how have you ended up in this job? Because, and in Perth, because I'm feeling like you're not a Perth local and like you've got a, a collection of skills, which is pretty close to unique. How, how are you here, say from high school? How'd you get here? Ah, yeah. So my accent gives me away every time. Uh, I was born in Chicago <laughs> uh, and I grew up all different places around the U.S., North Carolina, Upper Michigan. I went to high school in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and then I did a four-year undergraduate degree at Augustana College, which is in Rock Island, Illinois, so about three hours' drive from Chicago. That's a liberal arts college. And then I focused on geography and environmental studies, And then I was really lucky. I got selected to be a geography intern at the National Geographic Society in Washington in the summer after I graduated. And so I did research for uh, maps that were published in the National Geographic magazine. But they also exposed us to all the different aspects of their operation there, which was just amazing. And then I went on and did a Master of Environmental Management at Duke University in North Carolina. And while I was there, we were supposed to do, it was mainly a coursework master's, but there was one semester where you were supposed to do a research project. So in the summer break between the two years, you were meant to go somewhere and do something that you could use for your project. And the people in this program at Duke, because Duke's a pretty high-powered university, they were so amazing and accomplished and people had been in the Peace Corps and all over the world. And I was just like, well, I'm going to do something cool then. Um, (laughs) I tried to think of the coolest thing I possibly could. And I remembered reading National Geographic magazines like all through my childhood. And I thought, I'm going to go to the Great Barrier Reef. So I, I called up the chairwoman of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, who at the time was Wendy Craig, out of the blue and was like, hi, I'm random person from the US. I'd like to do an unpaid internship at your organization. Is that cool? And she was just like, uh, okay. (laughs) And then I had to get the funding. (laughs) So I was chasing down all these people like to give me money so that I could go there because it was expensive to fly there. And yes, so Went there for three months, worked at the Marine Park Authority. And as part of that, that's when I did that field trip with the sea snakes that I mentioned. I also got to fly in a Coast Watch plane. So this is like a little plane that seats like five people. 
and they use them for compliance of the the regulations of what you're allowed and not allowed to do in the marine park. So basically trying to catch people illegally fishing. So we're doing barrel rolls and all this stuff so that they can take these photos of these people. (laughs) And I was like, whoa. And I got certified for scuba. Uh, So then I went back and finished the second year of my degree and wrote my thesis. Um, And while while I was there, I met my first husband. (laughs) So then I had this incentive to move to Australia and do a PhD because I had a boyfriend in Australia. (laughs) Uh, So I got a scholarship for James Cook University in Townsville. And I moved there in February of 1995. And then that's when I started my Australian chapter. Okay, so then I I was in Townsville for nine years. I was about two years into my PhD when my one of my supervisors left the university and they asked me to apply for his job. And I was like, what? But I applied for the job as a, a lecturer and I got the job. And so then I started teaching geographic information systems, which is basically uh, taking maps and putting them into a computer and using them to ask lots of cool spatial questions. Yeah. So then I did that full time and kept trying to finish my PhD on the side, which was tricky because I also did a lot of outreach activities. Um, anytime the university had an event, they always wanted me to to do something, design a workshop or whatever. But eventually I met my husband that I have now. So I split up with my first husband. I met my husband that I have now who used to, at the time was in the Australian Air Force and he found out he was getting moved to Sydney. And I was like, oh, dang, I have to finish my PhD or that's it for my academic career. So then I like got really targeted and stopped doing all the outreach and just really controlled anyone's access to me and um, basically redid the whole thing in one year. Um, And then I was lucky and a job came open at University of Wollongong in New South Wales which is only about an hour from Sydney. So I got hired as a lecturer in GIS there and finished my PhD and we moved down there. This is becoming a very long story. Do you want me to keep going? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I want to know what happens next. <laughs> you can always edit it. So I was there for six years. Then my husband, still in the Air Force at the time, got a very prestigious posting to the United States where my family are from. And so we moved there for four years and I went on a uh, honorary appointment. So I still supervised my PhD students and worked on my research, but I just didn't get paid. And so then at the end of that, uh, he got a posting with the Air Force to Perth. And that's how we ended up in Perth. I was running my own consulting firm, scientific consulting firm during that time when I wasn't, well, basically in the middle of the night because our twin sons were born while we were there. (laughs) So the first year in Perth, I got a big contract with the Australian Institute of Marine Science or AIMS, where I work now. And I worked on that. And then towards the end of that year, 
a job came available and I applied for that and got that job and that was six years ago. So I've been in that in that role for six years. So yeah, that's kind of the how it all progressed. <laughs> Did you have any inkling when you're in high school that this was even vaguely where you wanted to head or did did you know that you could do spatial science for for a job? Well, I started using GIS when I was at university. So when I was in high school, this shows you how old I am because I'm 50. When I was in high school, there was a computer club and the computers were really big and took up most of a room and only a few people even went in there. When I started university, there was a computer lab, but most people still use typewriters. And it was halfway through university that uh, it became more widespread and people started doing this crazy thing called FTP where you could transfer files like through electronics rather than having to physically move them on a floppy disk. <laughs> and so the first GIS I used Actually, when you wanted to print a map, you used a dot matrix printer. So your listeners will have to Google all this because they're not going to even know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, some of them will. um, We've got a mixture of listeners. Okay. So some of you will have big empathy for me for how much of a pain this was. Basically, it printed X's and had blank spaces. And that's what you had to compose your map. Uh, So that's how it all started out. But yeah, when I was in high school, no, like I had no idea. And in fact, I'd only been to the beach like a handful of times in my life at that stage because my grandparents moved to Florida. So we went and visited them. When I was at uh, at undergraduate university, I forgot to mention that we had a foreign semester abroad program. So I did the one that went to Latin America. So for three months uh, with about, I don't know, 30 or so other students and three lecturers, we went to Mexico, Costa Rica, uh, Ecuador, Chile, and Argentina. And we did four subjects that they kind of taught us as we were there. So we went in the tropical rainforest and did ecology. We toured historic uh, Buenos Aires and did history. We, yeah, it was amazing. We saw turtles laying eggs on a black sand beach in Costa Rica. So, and that was my first time camping and snorkeling. Um, so that's when I was like, oh my God, I've got to do coastal and marine stuff, apply my geographical lens to those things. So that's what kind of made me lean towards that and that's why when I went to Duke University I focused in the coastal management program but yeah no when I was in high school I had no idea I knew I needed to go to university and do something more probably because I'm in a family full of super nerds so I have a PhD my dad has a PhD and two master's degrees my mom has or had two undergraduate degrees. My older sister has a master's in art history and my little sister has a PhD in women's studies. So I'm the only scientist, but 
they were all like super nerds. So I knew that was the thing I should do until I knew what I wanted to do. That's that's quite a lot of family pressure, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't feel like they pressured me, but I kind of felt like, um, I hope this doesn't sound wrong, but I felt a responsibility that I had this opportunity and an aptitude for further study. Not everyone has that. It would be kind of um, rude of me to just blow it off. And there was nothing else competing with it. So it's not like I desperately wanted to be a dancer and I was good enough to do that. I mean, I like dancing, but no chance. (laughs) And then I thought, oh no, I have to do this noble science purpose. I didn't have anything else. So I love the way that travel opportunity also like helped you find the purpose for the maps as well. That's really cool. Yeah, it's an amazing program, especially for students in countries like the United States where your immersion in the international stage is kind of minimal. Like I knew people in high school, for example, even though we were a 20-minute drive from Washington, D.C., who'd never been to the nation's capital who had grown up in one county and they'd never left that county. So people that live in big cities won't know what I'm talking about, but people in rural areas of the United States, they just don't get much exposure, even through the media, to what things are like in other countries. Um, And I think doing one of those foreign semester experiences, it's totally immersive and it really changes your perspective and broadens your idea of what's possible. Definitely. I'm I'm really happy for you that you had that experience. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm curious though, you've you've made a lot of maps for a long period of time. Are there any maps that you've made that you're particularly proud of? Well, I think what we've been doing in the last year and a half is really exciting. So I mentioned that we make these predictive models that allow us to map where we think different habitats might exist on the seafloor. And we base this on actual field data and then statistics. So when we do that and build the model, we use two thirds of the data to build the model and we save one third of the data to be an independent test of how well the model performs. So you take, you take the built model, you predict across the whole map, you pull out the predictions for those one-third of locations that you saved and compare what the model said versus what the actual data said. And that gives you an idea of how confident you can be about your map. Now, the new thing we've been doing is you can actually adjust that so that you can map how that confidence changes within the study area. So normally in most uh, maps, you have a level of confidence or they call it classification accuracy. And that applies across the entire study area or the whole map. But we know that some areas you can be much more confident than others within that area. And that can be super important for using that data to make decisions. So 
that new approach that we're we're working on, I think is really valuable to make sure that our maps can be used appropriately for real world decision making. Is there any that people can take a look at or are they all currently secret? Oh, um, I will have a look and see if I can find a link for you. That'd be cool. I'm pretty sure there there will be one you can look at, but uh, we haven't published the paper yet, uh, but there's a report that they're in. that. So remind me if I forget and I'll send you that link. That's okay. We'll take a report. I, I don't know. We, we, yeah, we're not that obsessed about things being published yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, scientists, we get in trouble if we... Yeah, you, yeah. you might get in trouble, <laughs> but my listeners are a little more open. Oh, and I, we also get in trouble if we don't publish enough papers. So that's why I was smacking my hand that we haven't published it yet because it's been on the list for a while. <laughs> Sometimes things get in the way, like pandemics. Exactly. <laughs> Homeschooling three kids while working a full-time job thing was a bit distracting. So any... Uh, any mothers out there who might be listening will know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, you're not alone. You're not alone. Do you have any advice for young people, whether they're at uni or whether they're in high school and they're thinking about that, that a career like this could be kind of cool? Have you got any advice for them? Yeah, well, there's so many people who are passionate about the marine environment, whether it's the charismatic creatures like dolphins and whales and stuff like that, penguins, or, or you know, you just love those environments because I think it's almost a universal human thing to, to enjoy being near the sea. So usually people think, oh, well, I need to be a marine biologist. And that is really, 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 really super competitive and hard to break into. So my advice is there's actually a whole nother pathway uh, into helping the marine environment in its conservation or understanding it, uh, which is the one I followed um, via geography and data science. And also if you're more of an IT person, there's also the hardcore data science where you might do, for example, my office mate, when I'm actually in the office, Matt, he does machine learning algorithms so that when we take our underwater video, normally an ecologist sits there and at five locations on every picture that the camera took underwater, they will identify what is there. You can imagine that's really slow and tedious. So they're using machine learning to teach the computer to recognize and be able to automatically classify the images. So there's that whole IT side to help us collect and analyze the marine and coastal data. So if, you're, if you love those environments and you have a bent towards IT, that's a great and hugely growing area. If you're more into the ecology or interested in where things are and why they're there, which could be dolphins. I work with the with our marine 
mammal experts all the time. Um, Michelle, my friend, and I um, worked on a study of turtles, flatback turtles, which are um, only found in Australia. So they migrate along the coastline for up to 2,000 kilometers um, between their nesting beach and where they like to feed. And I mentioned before, I'm interested in cyclones. So she had radio tracking data of all these turtles. And we could see that some of them took these really weird detours off their paths. And I was able to show that there was a big cyclone creating like up to 10 meter high waves right when that turtle took that big detour. So yeah, my advice is that there's other pathways into getting to work in these beautiful places if that's what you want to do. Just um, think creatively, think about what is it that you offer Um, What's your unique set of skills and interests and what value could it possibly add? And if you don't know, that doesn't matter. Talk to as many people doing things you think are cool as possible. And 99% of them will be thrilled that someone is interested in what they're doing and would love to tell you all about it and, and their journey. That's fantastic advice. I like it. Talk to cool people and... You don't have to approach things straight on. There's a whole lot of sideways ways in to doing cool things, making a big difference in the world. Yeah. Have you got any myths about your field of work, spatial science, any of that sort of stuff, any myths out there in the general world that you would like to take this opportunity to squash? Oh, well, we kind of joked about this um, before we started the interview, I think, tech in general has a stereotype of of this like geeky person who can't like to have fun and is usually male so i don't fit that stereotype at all (laughs) i like to have lots of fun and i think being a nerd is a good thing and i tell my kids they should be proud to be smart but That doesn't mean you have to be antisocial and you can't have friends. So I would say stereotypes serve no one. If you like a thing and you don't see anyone who looks like you doing that thing, then you be that one who starts doing that thing so that other people can do it too. Don't be afraid to to do something different, even if the prevailing kind of trend is that that people like you don't do that. Nope, you can do whatever you want. Start a new trend. I, I think the two of the other ways that stand out that you're you're not your average, average, stereotypical meme-worthy data scientist is you appear to have a tan and you're also an incredibly proficient and efficient communicator. So. Oh, well, that I am, that is a wonderful compliment because I... I spend a fair bit of my time not trying to get tan, but I live in Perth and we're just ending summer. So it's very sunny here. No, I spend a lot of my time in outreach activities. So in my spare time, I run a program for kids called What Do Penguins and Coral Reefs Have in Common? Uh, Which is a totally geography question. I love it because 
they have totally different habitats. They're nowhere near each other in where their habitats are. And it seems like they should have nothing in common. Um, but what they have in common is they're under extreme threat from climate change and we can already see the impacts. Um, so yeah, I, I, and you know, in a field like spatial science, usually you're talking to no matter what age and background the people have, they usually don't know much about it. So from the very beginning, I've always had to find ways to explain things in simple and accessible terms, but without dumbing it down, because then you're not communicating anything. And so before I worked on coral reefs and climate change, I was still already doing that. I, um, I go into lots of schools every year and uh, do all kinds of fun things with kids to teach them about climate change. That's good. That's very, very important work. Hard work, but it's important. Well, kids are very inspiring. They don't have mortgages. They are curious. The, the age kids that I'm usually talking to, you know, they haven't hit puberty yet. So they're not like, they're happy to be who they are. They're not so worried about fitting in. And so they're very open and they ask amazing questions and it gives you hope for the future of the world. <laughs> we, all, we all need a little bit of hope. We've covered quite a few things. Is there anything else outstanding that you really wanted to share that you haven't had an opportunity to share yet? Would people be interested in knowing some of the crazy things I do when I do my outreach program? Sure. Go for it. I joined a international leadership program for women in science called Homeward Bound. If you Google Homeward Bound Antarctica, you'll find it. It's based in Australia, but it includes people from all over the world. It's a 10-year program for women in science uh, to build up a network of a thousand women in science and give us state-of-the-art leadership skills to, to take action on climate. So I joined that and I was really inspired and I wanted to make a difference. So I thought, oh, well, I know how to do outreach. So that's when I, I extended and kind of established the program I mentioned about penguins and coral reefs. And that's what gave me the idea to include penguins because I, each of the 10 years of the program, each cohort, uh, they have a year-long program and then they spend three weeks on a ship in Antarctica. So I was going to Antarctica, oh my God, and going to see penguins. I saw three species of penguins. So I thought, well, this is too big of an opportunity. I've got to do something cool. Uh, so I decided to run a drawing contest for kids aged four to 14. And I asked them to what they love most about penguins or coral reefs because they're under threat, whatever. And so... I got these amazing drawings, 1,246 separate drawings were submitted in two months from 11 different countries and 120 schools. And my sister, my older sister had had the original idea, oh, well, every drawing you get, you can just make on a banner and print it and show it in Antarctica. But suddenly I had a lot of them and I'm like, oh. God, what are we gonna do? 
So my friend Ben at work uh, and another friend, Emily, both had the idea of mosaicing the drawings into the shape of the, of the emblem of my outreach, which is a dabbing penguin. So I mosaiced them into that shape. And then I found that if I printed it on fabric in five separate panels, it was vastly cheaper than trying to print it as one piece because the banner ended up being seven meters high and 5.17 meters wide. So it was going to cost $63,000 to print it as one piece. So luckily, my husband is an expert sewer. And at work, he has access to an industrial sewing machine. And he was able to precision sew these panels together. And then he like made all these handles out of seatbelt material and like edged it off. So it's super durable. So then I took that giant banner to Antarctica and he had to show me how to fold it because he's a an op- he used to be an open water sailor. He sailed the Sydney to Hobart yacht race, for example. So he knows how to fold sails and make them fit into tiny spaces. So it fits into this backpack I can wear. <laughs> so uh, I took it to Antarctica and we videoed it at a penguin colony and on the deck of the ship. So that was pretty exciting. And then now this year I'm running another drawing contest. This time shifting the focus to action and focusing on trees. So it's like, what do penguins and coral reefs and trees have in common? <laughs> uh, or what can what do trees have to do with it? Uh, so obviously trees can suck carbon dioxide out of the air and they make oxygen that we breathe. So they're super useful. So I teamed up with a company that does tree planting in Australia called 15 Trees. And they are going to plant a tree on behalf of every Australian entrant. And if I have entrants from other countries, I will find sponsorship to plant trees for them. We will print giant banner of the drawings in this new contest. And it's going to tour around iconic forests across Australia and also around the world. So in Southwest Australia, where I am, there's a lot of amazing trees being cleared. Um, Tasmania, Victoria. I'd like to take it to mangroves because lots of mangroves are dying, but they're really important. Uh, I'd like to take it to the redwood forest, the boreal forest, the Amazon. I mean, we'll see what happens with COVID. And I'm about to apply for the opportunity to display the banner and the original penguin banner at the next United Nations climate meeting, which is going to be in Glasgow in November. So the, the, my idea is to show kids that they can do something and to offer adults the opportunity to magnify the impact. So at the minimum, there'll be a tree planted for you if you enter the contest, but hopefully other people will kick in more money to do more carbon offsets and decision makers at this climate meeting can see these videos and, and know that kids care about climate change, which is the, uh, the contest website name. <laughs> and don't worry, we'll include a link to that in the show notes, of course. Cool. That's, fan- that's a fantastic challenge. I love it. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to share some links and stuff. 
yeah, I'm going to have to get vaccinated like 10 billion times so that I can travel with this banner because I want to I want to climb these trees and be in the video just because hoping that everywhere we do that, we can invite, you know, a crowd of people to be part of it. That's that's really fun. Awesome. We'll we'll do some sharing and yeah, see if we can get some more people involved. Have you got anyone who you'd like to give a shout out to? Anyone who you'd like uh, everyone listening to give a virtual high five? Oh, wow. I've had a lot of amazing mentors over time. Uh, Norm Moline was my undergraduate supervisor and was at Augustana College, and he was instrumental in facilitating me to apply for that National Geographic internship, which was amazing, and he was very supportive. Then when I was doing my master's, Michael Orbach, he was my advisor, and he was super supportive, and I wrote my first journal article with his encouragement, and so thank you to him. Then when I went to James Cook University, Helene Marsh, uh, who's a professor there, she just got a big award in the Australia Day Awards. She organized for me to be eligible for a scholarship that I probably shouldn't have been eligible for because I hadn't lived in Australia long enough. And that allowed me to do my PhD and afford to to do it and live and she was always a huge support she was the head of school when I became the lecturer she was like oh my gosh Mari you're the only person I've ever interviewed who didn't negotiate for your salary like don't ever do that again (laughs) because I thought I can't believe they're giving me this job (laughs) let's see and then uh, a big shout out to my colleague at Wollongong, Laurie Chisholm, who was an amazing support. She's a remote sensing expert um, during my time there. Very talented researcher and teacher. Uh, and then where I am now, um, Ben Radford um, really encouraged me to apply for the job I'm in now and has always been a huge support. Those are the ones that immediately come to mind, but there's heaps of other people I could mention. I've I've been so lucky. So many people have been kind to me over time. That's fantastic. I won't relist all of them, but I would like everyone listening to give some virtual high fives to all those people and to thank, imaginarily, thank them for like helping lift up other people because that's really important. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Murray. It has been fascinating we've had a wild ride and i'm hoping everyone everyone listening is feeling a little bit inspired to make some little changes and do yeah do some stuff so thanks so much for coming on the show thank you so much it was just lots of fun and everyone you can do it thanks so much for tuning in this year if you like this podcast you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter you can also now sign up to our patreon which means that if you so choose you can financially support avid research and i have a massive shout out to our very first patreon david lee who is a fantastic human being as a result 
of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions, he gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats, and he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. 